Stand clear. 100% wild podcast. So for all you listeners, hello and welcome to definitely not your favorite outdoor podcast. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Drury Outdoors 100% Wild Podcast. That's Matt Drury over there. That's Tim Chelswick. We're powered by DeerCast. This is episode number 263. It's crazy. We are closing in on our goal of 300 this year. That's right. Man, 300 episodes. What's crazy to me is that turkey season's basically over. (laughs) Hey, let's catch everyone up on our turkey seasons. We haven't killed anything. You're cricket, caught up. Cricket, cricket, <laughs> been tough. <laughs> Nothing. Yeah, I've got a. There's a few more days here in the Missouri season. Um, I'm gonna try to do a couple more sits, and uh, but if it if it ends the way it it started, uh, it'll be a pretty sad season for me. Yeah, man. We were talking about you know we wanted to do a a fish fry and like a spring you know cookout here yeah. at the office for the guys and. We have we nothing. No <laughs> we have nothing to show for it. So. We got five morels. We got no turkeys. We should relocate the office at uh, up at the camp. You know, Marks or Terry's, because they're both of them. Their their camps have filled a they're lot stocked. of tags. Yeah, <laughs> we are not. Yeah. You know, I I just saw a post that the Missouri Department of Conservation put out there on their Facebook. They found I don't know if you saw this. An agent heard a gunshot during turkey season and went to investigate and just saw a guy riding through the woods on his four-wheeler. Was he saying yee-yee? <laughs> <laughs> Probably had it in his back glass. Yeah. But uh, but upon further, they brought a canine in. And obviously, there was some suspicion here about what was really happening. They brought a canine in. They found a hidden gun in the woods. They found a spent shot shell. And they found turkey breast meat in the Ziploc bag hidden like under a log what <laughs> I mean just the tag's not that expensive that's what I'm saying like you just wh- buy a tag that guy put himself through a lot of extra work now I don't know if maybe he had a, a felony, felony conviction yeah. and couldn't own a gun he just really wanted some but turkey holy meat. cow what a lot of what a, I mean that's a lot L- of work listen and that that's stuff like that is why I think fanning is such a hot topic issue for a lot of people and, you know, turkey fanning, reaping, so yeah. to speak. I think that's why that's such a, you know, I mean, everything I ever learned when you had hunter safety was you don't wear red, you know, <laughs> white or blue into the woods. And, you know, you don't want to look like a turkey. And then here people are using fans that, you know, and I I, I know it's it's different. Some people you're hunting on private ground, you, you're pretty sure nobody's on it. But my point in saying all this is, I guess you never really know what could be going on. Yeah, because it's, I mean, who knows if that guy was also trespassing. If he's willing to hide turkey meat under a log, he's probably also willing to trespass. Back in, I, I forget which video, it was a VHS title. It was like, it may have been Sound of the Spring. So one of the first two titles that we uh-huh. ever did. And the guys did a whole production where they had this guy who was mushroom hunting, you know, morel hunting, and he got shot. It was yapper. It was all pretend, right? And they were mm-hmm. they were trying to, I guess, share a dramatization, yeah, awareness, cautionary of, tale, yeah, yeah, exactly, on hunter safety. And and there's a shot of the Bloomsdale because we did it back at uh, the Forty Acre Club mm-hmm. in Bloomsdale, which is where Mark and Terry used to hunt. And there's this dramatic, long, dramatic shot of an ambulance, the ambulance. The Bloomsdale ambulance, <laughs> just going up and down these hills. It's like a four minute shot of the sirens going on. And yeah, it's uh, no, I know what it was. Yapper shot the guy, Bubba, that this guy by the name of Wayne Grind. He was the one that got shot. I'm I'm pretty sure that that was what who it was. Who shot who? 
Yapper shot Bubba. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, I digress. Yes. (sighs) Let's get into the guest. Why why don't we do that? We got Lindsey Thomas, like I said, from the National Deer Association. Lindsey, what's up, man? Hey guys, that was a heck of a setup there to bring me in. <laughs> well, so the feed's cutting out here. We, we should we should talk about why we have Lindsay on. First of all, kind of set it up, and, and he Tim, bullied is, me into <laughs> getting say, on the show. This is something that you've him. been working on inside Deercast and and trying to share with our listeners and users a little bit more about what the NDA does. And of course, they've been around for a long time. And previously, QDMA and the, the, a hell of an organization. If you're a deer hunter, to, to be a part of. Yeah, and so um, so. Folks who have been watching DeerCast know that we posted a couple articles on trail camera bans that have been happening primarily out west. And it's caused a lot of concern about, uh, especially here in the Midwest, guys, that we live and die by our trail cameras a lot of the times. Not only for deer hunting, but also for managing our herds. And uh, so we posted a couple articles in DeerCast and then saw that NDA was actually taking a position. They came out publicly with a a position statement. And we'll let Lindsay kind of dive a little more deeper into that. Uh, But to me, it was just there's kind of a wow, this is really happening. The NDA has to like feels led to come out and offer a position statement on the use of trail cameras. So Lindsay and I talked a little bit about it and he's like, yeah, I totally be you know, happy to, to come on and, and kind of go into the behind the scenes. Why that sure. Happened. When I think of trail camera usage, I feel like it's almost like a, um, that's mine. <laughs> you keep touching. Don't, if you touch my drumsticks more time, <laughs> I will stab you in the neck with a knife. So, so I, when I think of trail camera use, especially in the Midwest, I mean, I, I, it's almost like your right to own a gun. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, why wouldn't you be able to? So, L- Lindsay, what what's the position that you guys take, and why did you guys feel the need to take a position on this topic? Um, basically, just to to sort of stake out our ground on this issue because we kind of saw the creep in discussion. Uh, Tim, just like you said, the news, you know, coming out of the West about some of the states that were instituting bans sort of was making folks nervous here in the East. And, uh, you know, it was it was driving some chatter about, uh oh, is my state going to ban trail cameras? And so we just wanted to go ahead early on and, and put a position out there and say, look, as an organization that is here to uh, protect wild deer and deer hunting. We think trail cameras are great. They are useful. They're great for science. They're great for deer hunters to use as a scouting tool, as a deer management tool. They're extremely popular. They're great for the general public. You know, we just see a lot of positives um, and not a lot of downsides. So we wanted to go ahead and just put that position out there that we support the use of trail cameras as hunting and wildlife observation and deer management tools. Um, Certainly, we leave ourselves open in a case-by-case basis to look at any question, uh, any ethical situation, and particularly any situation that might affect deer populations and deer management. But for now, the way things stand, we support the use of trail cameras. So far, Lindsay, what has been the most... um provocative or uh, kind of the, the the argument that carries the most weight against the use of trail cameras that you've heard, whether you agree with it or not, but what's been the most provocative statement someone's made? You know, seeing the situations out West and, and once the details came out about that and we kind of dug into it and learned uh, the motivation for some of those regulations, it kind of made sense to me when you look at 
you know, the arid west and arid southwest where they had situations with people putting dozens, literally, of trail cameras around an individual waterhole. And uh, to monitor, you know, particularly elk and other game species coming to those waterholes, you had situations where there were outfitters that were doing this as well. And, you know, a lot of conflict was developing around that. It really wasn't so much a wildlife management issue as it was a social issue with people, Mm -hmm. you know, getting angry because so-and-so showed up to check his trail camera while they were there hunting the waterhole. That's my understanding of this of a lot of situations there. And those are very specific situations that I can kind of understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I also understand that out West, you know, the general opinion among hunters has been mostly supportive of these regulations. So um, I can see that uh, that makes sense to me, but, uh, but, my, but those situations are not going to apply in most of whitetails world, um, you know, back East. We don't really have situations where, uh, even on public land, where, where folks are coming into conflict because of the use of trail cameras to try to scout a uh, game. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't you, if you were out west, I, I guess I don't understand like why they would have a blanket ban across a state. Like Utah was one of them, right? Like why would you have that? When I know majority of the hunting probably, I don't know, I assume majority of the hunting is public land type hunting. So I understand where the government, you know, they might pass something that says, Hey, on public land, you can't do that. I mean, we're, we're accustomed to that on public lands all over the country, but why would you make it on private land as well? Like, I I don't know if I was a landowner, I'd be pretty pissed if this was a way, you know, if you're an outfitter, maybe you own your ground or if, Mm -hmm. if you're just a private landowner and you own some ground, I, I don't know how prevalent that is. How like what percentage of people that accounts for, but man, I'd be uh, pretty upset if they passed that due to things that are happening on public land, which is probably the case. And here I am a a private landowner. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, shoot, what about me? You know, why do I got to do this? Yeah. To me, I mean, this I'm, I'm a limited government kind of guy and I feel like states rights, like states are where the majority of legislation ought to come. They're more local to the individuals and people can choose how they want their states governed because what California needs is different than what Missouri needs and so on and so forth. Um, so, but that was a state deal, right? That state of Utah. But it yeah. very much was. And so like was if you Arizona, another? Arizona and Utah, yeah. if you get down like even to a more local level, like look at the, you know, county regulations or look at using tools like, uh, like to say like you can't place a trail camera within a certain number of yards within a water hole on a, on a piece of public ground, like use it. Legislation can be a tool, but you don't want it to be a hammer. You want it to be a scalpel. You like, you want to be precise in how you leverage the legislation. And it just seems like a statewide ban like that, that does influence, it infringes on the liberties of a lot of people. And that's kind of a spooky thing. So Lindsay, have you guys seen anything popping up that <clears throat> across the States from a, from a, a whitetail standpoint? Cause I, I've heard, you know, Mark and, and, and Terry and these guys, like they're, they're pretty, um, I guess, you know, behind the scenes, they know a lot of people that are very, uh, in the know on these topics. And there are some situations that are arising, um, uh, from state to state about this topic and, and others that are a little concerning. Have you guys, is, is there anything publicly come out yet about this type of thing that you guys are kind of actively fighting against or are, are kind of getting geared up for? 
not that I'm aware of. This was for us more of a, a preemptive move to go ahead and kind of get on record where we stand on this. Um, I believe the only Eastern state that has any kind of regulation on this is New Hampshire. And their rule, which has been around since 2015, says that you can't kill the game on the same day you got the picture of it. Whoa. So you can use trail cameras. You just can't, you know, they're trying to prevent a situation where you're sitting on the, in the recliner and your camera dings, your cell phone goes off and tells you there's a deer standing by the camera and you hurry out the back door and shoot it. <laughs> um, so that's the only Eastern state that has any kind of a regulation that I'm aware of. I'm not aware of anyone that's, that's looking at this. You know, we, we stay in close contact with the deer project leaders in, in most of the states have good relationships with them. And they've got a lot of, you know, research that involves trail cameras. A lot of their information involves that they have, you know, comes from trail cameras. And many of them, of course, are deer hunters and use cameras themselves. And I, I don't detect right now any undercurrent that, 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 that would say, you know, this is something that's going to creep into more eastern states. When you look at, just like y'all were saying earlier, look at the percentage of hunters that use trail cameras. It's pretty high. You know, I saw some numbers out of Michigan from a 2020 survey they did. They asked uh, folks in their survey, do you use a trail camera? And it said 47% of deer hunters did. That actually seems a little low to me. Yeah. But, um, you know, but we can say at least we think half of all deer hunters out there probably use these. Um, And I think that if anybody moved to really begin to regulate this more in the East in a way like, say, banning all wireless cameras, as they've done in uh, I think uh, Montana has banned cell cams. Um, and, you know, that's how Arizona got started, too, was they banned cell cams in 2018 and then eventually went to the full ban in 2021. I think if anything of that was like that was bubbling up out there in the big eastern whitetail states, uh, I think you there would be an uproar. And I don't think anybody's wanting to go down that road. It could be wrong, but they certainly would have their handfuls. They'd, they'd have a fight on their hands. Cell, cell cameras... I don't care what anybody says. You could get a picture. I, I've had plenty of pictures of deer. Like, say, during, you know, the rut, I get a picture, you know, 4 a.m., a deer traveling right close to my stand. And, you know, that was a stand we're going to go hunt. And I, I don't care. You, it doesn't mean you're going to kill that deer. <laughs> like, I, I had a lot of trail cam pictures this year from cell cameras, and I had a hell of a tough season. And, and, and you even look at guys like Mark and Terry, and does it help them put – the bigger picture together yes but you know they're still wild animals and <laughs> they're still walking randomly throughout mm-hmm. wherever they're walking like i don't know like how their people put together that as a direct correlation a kill with the cell cam picture as a direct correlation i think it's a stretch does it help yes does it help create the picture of what they're doing yes but shit does it mean you're gonna kill it absolutely not well and how many deer have not been killed because you know you're waiting for one particular deer yeah more more yeah probably more of that than anything <laughs> and and i yeah that's and like you said it's part of the, the bigger picture here how many people do we know that kill the big buck and they'll show you their trail camera pictures they had of him but they'll also lay out you know two three years worth of shed antlers that they had from the buck it's all part of the same package of intelligence that you gathered from being out there scouting knowing the animal knowing the habitat knowing about him the picture the camera is not how that deer was killed it's like you said it's part of the bigger picture you could not hand a picture of a deer to someone who's never been hunting before and say here's here go kill this deer you know it it, it still requires skill on our part whether that's woodsmanship skills 
skill with your gun or bow, skill with hanging a stand and not bumping the deer. You know, there's so much more that comes into this. Um, the, the camera, the pictures really are just completing that picture of information you've been gathered, gathering across days, weeks, and, and months or even years. Yeah. There's been scenarios where, you know, you hear guys say, I, I killed this deer because of this pic, you know, the cameras killed the deer or whatever, but they still randomly have to walk in front of the spot that you randomly picked. I mm-hmm. mean, it might, there yeah. might, it might've upped your percentages or odds, but you still, a lot of factors have to still happen for it to come together. Right. Right. I've been running trail cameras for a lot of years and well, ever since I was, you know, putting film in them and taking that to the one hour photo to get developed. Yeah. What's film? <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Let me tell you guys what that is. Um, I have never killed a deer that I could say happened because of the picture led directly to the deer's death. You know, the closest I ever came was a couple of years ago. And by the way, my family's land where I hunt is in Southeast Georgia. It's about four hours South of where I live. So to start with, you know, I can't do this kind of reaction where you get a wireless cam picture and you head out and you go kill the deer. But uh, I was heading for the weekend, heading down for the weekend to hunt. We were in Pete rut. And on Thursday at one o'clock in the afternoon, I got a, cell cam picture of a buck mature buck eight pointer that we knew about that i wanted to try to kill crossing a food plot in the broad daylight at one o'clock in the afternoon and i thought huh look at there there you know which is typical you obviously we all see more of the adult bucks moving during daylight during peak rut that's when it happens well on friday i'm driving to the farm and the cell phone sends me a message new pictures guess what one o'clock in the afternoon two days in a row the buck crossed that food plot I thought, man, that, there we go. There's a pattern. So I got down there. I hunted somewhere else that evening. I hunted somewhere else the next morning. But the next, on that Saturday at 11 a.m., I, I slipped in there with a climbing stand, moved in downwind, and climbed a tree where I could see into that plot about 100 yards away and also survey the woods that he would have had to cross to get into that plot. Mm-hmm. And I sat there four hours. Three o'clock, I climbed down. I had not seen anything. I went and got in another deer stand for that evening. So even when you think you've got a pattern coming off of something like a wireless cam, it's not a guarantee. Uh, a buck is still a wild animal and they're hard to kill and they're still unpredictable. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't remember if it was in the article you guys posted on your website or the DeerCast article, but, uh, but it went into the stats on just how many deer hunters in the U.S. don't kill a single deer every season. It's a good majority of them. And then those that do typically only kill one. Sure. It's hard. It's the, it's a very few that kill multiple deer. And a lot of people, it it may be only firearm season that they go, you know, so Uh, when you look at the mass numbers, you know, you get the numbers in the firearm seasons for each state. Right. And so really that's probably a weekend or a week that they hunt out of the whole year. Whereas, you know, the archery guys might be a little hunt a little Mm -hmm. bit more, but you know, what do you get? 30 days total. And you kill a deer or two deer, it's a pretty good year. I mean, yeah, and that firearm cool. season, I mean, you you can't ask for a more unpredictable time of the year for deer movement. So, you know, trail cameras again are not going to be the end all be all. They're not going to be a death sentence for a deer. And I, I know we're kind of preaching to the choir here, making the case. But I w- w- one thing I, I did like about the the angle that you guys cover, Lindsay, is that you talked about like these are used as wildlife management and wildlife observation tools. Also, they're not. 
they're not just for hunting. And I think that that probably helps people who may be on the fence or don't understand a whole lot about hunting. And maybe here's some of this, this uh, discussion we're having. Maybe it helps them be a little more okay with the use of trail cameras. Yeah, I think the trail cameras were one of the, you know, really, they really helped speed up the growth of the, the quality deer management philosophy across North America. Because think about folks finally putting a camera out there and seeing a mature buck on camera. Think about the, the incentive that gave people to maybe wait uh, to hold that tag when a four-pointer walked by or a, you know, a yearling buck uh, because they knew that that older buck was out there. Or if they were trying to convince their neighbors that, hey, if you let these yearling bucks go, they do get older and they get bigger. Here's a picture of one. You know, here's the proof. It wasn't just believe what I'm telling you anymore. It was here's the image of this buck. So we think that trail cameras played a big role in shifting deer hunters toward a more management-minded approach, toward thinking about themselves as a steward of a population rather than just a consumer to, who's going out there to you know take whatever deer they see that day and go home. Yeah. Uh, it's played a big part in that. And when you when you look at this bigger issue and talking about statistics, you know, we can talk about fair chase and ethics all day and we'll never come down to any clear ground about where trail cameras stand, you know, you know, on that spectrum from completely artificial to completely primitive. You know, it's somewhere in the middle, but exactly where we'll never determine. But our organization really, though we're a fair chase organization, we've been known to be more about populations and herd management and the biology of the animal. And when you look at that, can we say that trail cameras have had a positive or negative impact on the deer population? That's when we would become concerned. If we thought that cameras or any other regulation, any other technique was having a negative impact on deer numbers and the health of the population, that's when we really would raise a cry. So let's look at the numbers. You know, today, according to our, our latest deer report, Deer hunters in the United States are killing more bucks and more mature bucks than they've ever killed before and more deer overall. Our deer harvests are high, the buck harvests are high, and when you look at that buck harvest, we're killing the highest percentage of three and a half year old and older bucks we've ever killed before. Mm. So deer populations are healthy, deer harvests are healthy. We don't see any indication here that trail cameras or anything else is having really a negative impact uh, on the quality of the deer population out there and the success that deer hunters are having. Uh, yeah. Cause I guess if you were to run some kind of a graph with the, the prevalence of trail cameras and the number of deer that are out there, like I think the people that are detract trail camera detractors would say, well, more trail cameras equal less deer cause you're killing more deer, but that's just, we don't like you said, we don't see that in the numbers. That's right. It's like people I mean, say there's more. room for all of us out there, really, whether you're talking about the guy who, you know, makes his own bow out of, you know, wood and, and, and string and does it completely primitive. There's room for that person out there. There's room for, you know, a range of things before we really get into what I would call artificial uh, deer. And I think trail cameras are a far cry from, from anything artificial. Yeah. And th th that's, that's a major issue that we have within the deer hunting community is people being able to make a distinction between their opinions and preferences versus what the law ought to be. 
because because we, we saw this when we posted these articles in Deercast. There were a few very vocal and staunch people who came out who said, "I've never used a trail camera, and I've still killed deer, and I, I'm a I'm a bigger hunter, better hunter than anyone else that's in this comment thread." And it was like, if you have if you believe in liberty, <laughs> then it's people are going to do things that you don't like. And you, and you have to be okay with that. As long as it doesn't infringe upon your rights, it's okay. And so when you have a state that allows the use of trail cameras, guess what? You can choose to not use them. If you feel like it's an advantage that you don't want to have over your deer, then just don't use them. But don't don't force your 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 hunting methods and preferences on other people if it's if it's not a matter of ethics or a legality. Yeah. So so Lindsay, you know, you guys there NDA. What are some of the 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 main things that you want your uh, users or you you know the people that follow you guys or potential new people that want to follow you? Like, what's the main I guess mission statement that you guys want to to convey to them? I mean, I you know we're talking about the herd, you know, herd health or, or, um, you know, managing for older deer, like these are all kind of guiding principles for you guys, right? Yeah. You know, we've always believed, you know, as you pointed out earlier, um, the national deer association came from the merging of the quality deer management association or QDMA and the national deer Alliance, which was the, they were doing the, the policy and advocacy work. And basically we just took the strengths of both organizations and put them all under one roof. We still and always will believe that quality deer management is the, the ideal way to manage a deer population in most circumstances. But we also think that over the years that QDMA was doing its work, it, not to say mission accomplished, but we think that it's largely the predominant mindset of most deer hunters out there today. Most deer hunters now understand that, you know, sometimes it's a good idea to take a few does. You may need to do that for the health and, and balance of the population. They understand that when you protect a young buck, he's going to get older and, and you can have better success at seeing adult bucks. Uh, we'll continue to always talk about that and teach that, particularly to folks that come to us and say, hey, how can I have better deer hunting where I am? But as an organization, we now have four new sort of cornerstone goals uh, for the NDA. You know, our mission is still to ensure the future of wild deer, wildlife habitat and hunting. That's it in a nutshell. But for us, we see four core areas we're working on now. Uh, one is hunter recruitment. And of course, the big piece of that is our field to fork program, which is has been a very successful adult hunter recruitment program. Um, and then you've got herd health is another big part of that. And mostly what we're talking about there is diseases. We really want to focus on understanding the diseases that are impacting deer populations. And of course, when you look under the lid of that area, we're talking mostly about chronic wasting disease, but there are other issues to be talked about there. A third cornerstone for us is education and outreach, simply always being continuing to be the group that puts out uh, scientifically valid and reliable information about deer, deer biology, deer management, habitat management, all of that information, serving as the conduit between the scientific community and the deer hunting community so that make sure that deer hunters have got that information in a form that they can digest. And then fourth is our advocacy and policy work, the, the pieces that we brought over from the Deer Alliance. Uh, Nick Penizzato and Torin Miller were doing an excellent job at that, and now Torin is our uh, director of policy. And so we've really upped our game working in legislatures and at the federal level 
on policy, either pushing policy that's good for deer Mm -hmm. or fighting policy that's bad for deer. We've had a lot of successes there. Uh, The new CWD Research and Management Act that is moving uh, through the the U.S. Capitol is going to get us a lot of funding that's badly needed for more research and action on chronic waste disease. Uh, So there's been a number of victories there. So those are really the four areas that we do most of our work in right now. I have a question on uh, the hunter recruitment. So, you know, I think by and large, most people in our industry think R3, it's, it's important. It's, you know, recruitment's important, but I'm starting to see this fringe groundswell online, you know, on Instagram or Facebook or whatever uh, of, of people who think that we don't need more hunters because of the, the loss in access to, hunting ground. So then public grounds are becoming more, more hunted. They're overcrowded. The quality of hunt is less and less. Like I'm Mm -hmm. starting to see this, you know, more and more of this comment. And I've never heard that up until the last year or two and probably, probably year really. And, and people just starting to really talk about the fact that maybe we have the right amount of hunters, but we don't have enough places for them to go when you think about privatization of ground and leases and like just the expense of trying to hunt um you know and finding a place to do it it's just you know when you think about that versus fishing how much harder it is to get into hunting what what do you guys think about that as far as is that a, a true issue that we need to start thinking about where we might hit a cap and how many people the the land can actually Carrying capacity for hunters. Yeah, exactly. I mean, is that something that you guys ever talk about internally? Uh, it is. And I, I kind of tell you where we stand. We don't think that there's a problem there, particularly when we're talking about eastern whitetails. Um, Alex Robinson wrote an article for Outdoor Life here a month or two back about this very question. And he did a great job sort of digging into this and teasing out the fact that a lot of that's coming from, or some of that that tone and that conversation you're talking about is coming from Western hunters and public land hunters, because like you said before, out West, it's mostly public land. Most of the hunting goes on on public land in the West. And certainly when you're talking about extremely desirable, you know, tags, um, small areas that are that are, you know, highly desirable areas with good elk populations. uh, Some of these areas that that, you know, you can show up at the trailhead and yeah, there's a bunch of cars parked there and a bunch of people in camp. And and it feels like, man, this place is packed because Eastern hunters are, are going out there to hunt or whatever. He really sort of t- explained that and explained how some, a lot of that is coming from, from those situations. Mm-hmm. But in the East, you know, 80, 90% of the deer hunting goes on on private lands in the East. We certainly got a lot of quality public lands out there and they're important, but we got to remember most of the deer hunting in the East goes on, takes place uh, on private lands. Most of the deer management, most of the deer habitat is a private lands issue in the East. Here's what we've found with our field to fork hunts. And real quick for the audience, what these are, these, this is not youth hunts. This is taking adults, recruiting adults who've never been hunting, don't have someone to take them, who are interested in hunting for the food value. They want to, that's generally the biggest um, pull is that they, they're interested in eating locally, eating wild, eating sustainably, knowing where their food comes from. All of these trends that we're seeing lately have really given us a pool of adults that we who are interested in learning to hunt so that's who we're reaching out to it's been very successful because 
let's think about an adult versus taking a 12 year old kid deer hunting for the first time next weekend that adult they've got a driver's license they've got income they've got money and time they can they've got the independence to make the decision next weekend to go hunting on their own to go to the store and buy a gun a bow a deer stand some of them have even bought land so we're seeing an immediate payoff with these adults and that's why we're investing more time in them we're also seeing them immediately turn around and take their friends hunting share their venison with family and friends who have never tasted venison before. So the payoff there is big. But the point I want to make about this is that most of our field to fork hunts are happening on private land where someone who deer hunts has volunteered to take these people with them. You look at the Back 40 property in Michigan, which was donated to us last year by Meat Eater. They started the Back 40, they, they ran videos on there, and then they gave us that land. We're, we're using our local volunteer base to take deer, these adult deer hunters on that land, but we've also recruited hunters and landowners around the property that border it to join in with us to say, will you take someone with you? So that's the model for most of these hunts is it's an adult who has their own private land who's taking someone else with them on their land and sharing that resource with them. So this is not, you know, increasing numbers necessarily on public land. Uh, it is literally taking folks like me and y'all who already deer hunt, who, you know, we're experienced, we've got a place to hunt, and we're simply sharing that. We're helping these folks discover the joy of helping someone new get involved in this. And a lot of these people report, you know, I've killed a lot of deer in my life, but I've never got as excited as the time I was sitting there and I watched the person I mentored kill their first deer. Mm. So that's, what the opportunity we see here is that on these private lands with these private land hunters who have the opportunity to share the resource. And it's really up to them to say, look, I've got enough deer. I've got a hunting opportunity here. I've got stands. I can bring these people in and share this with them. So we're not seeing an issue with running out of places to take people. A lot of these people are urbanites and a lot of these urban areas have got places that can be bow hunted locally when we teach them how to do that how to go into suburban areas find people who've got a few acres and a deer problem and how to get access to that so we we don't see a problem yet with uh a lack of dirt or a lack of deer the immediacy to send these of the into the world hunting yeah yeah it's the immediate immediacy of the experience and being able to get out there it's great to take kids out hunting you plant the seed uh and that may or may not take root, but you take an adult, they have the means and the methods to be able to get out there. And makes perfect sense. I mean, I, I believe there's been studies about the amount of, you know, there's all these, every state just about has a youth season mm -hmm. and just how, when you, the youth actually, once they age out of that, how they don't come back to hunting <laughs> necessarily. Yeah. So, um, I, I think it's a great program that, that you guys are spearheading there. It makes a lot of sense. Yep. Let's hop into the question of the day. I think I think Lindsay can help us out with this. All righty. The question of the day is probably brought to you by Leopold Optics, American to the core. Hi, my name is Justin, and I'm from Northeast Oklahoma. My question revolves around summer mock scrapes. I've noticed there's a lot of deer scent companies promoting summer mock scrapes on social media. What benefits are there to making mock scrapes in the summer, if any? Thank you. Something I've never done, but curious, Lindsay, what do you think? 
I think the benefits are just like any other time of year is taking inventory and keeping up with the bucks that are out there, you know, on the property. It's interesting how, you know, it doesn't have to be the rut deer and particularly bucks will, they get curious. I don't know whether it's the smell of fresh dirt or what it is, but there's something that will trigger them to come to those areas. I've never done that either, Tim. I'm like you, but uh, Brian Grossman, who's my communications manager, and he hunts mostly on public land here in Georgia, and he runs cameras, you know, most of the year on public land. He gets, you know, he uses that a lot to his advantage on his public land intelligence about the deer that are out there. He gets started early. So in July, he's making mock scrapes and getting quickly within a day or two, getting pictures of bucks. So he's already figuring out early on, you know, where these bucks are located uh, well before the season. And that, that, you know, particularly on public land, when uh, that kind of intelligence can be extremely valuable, you, you've got to get dialed in on where those deer are on public land and sort of be the first person in there. Um, that can be really important. Uh, but yeah, even on private land, going ahead and seeing the bucks that are out there in July and beginning to get an inventory of, of who's there can be really helpful, particularly in early archery seasons. It's a, it's a great point you make about hunting public land, especially if you can't put out minerals or any kind of feed, then it's a way to still take inventory and stay within the bounds of the regulations. That's interesting. Exactly. Cool. All right. Well, let's move on into the wildlife word. It's brought to you by Sportsman's Channel, your home of Winchester and Drury's natural born and everything red, wild, and blue. We're talking about fawns and we're talking about superpowers that fawns have. What superpower do fawns exercise when they're bedded and an intruder approaches? It's a multiple choice, Lindsay. Is it A, they engage active camouflage? Like Master Chief. B, their hooves soften to allow them to run away unheard silently. C, their hair bristles to make them appear bigger. Or D, their heart rate drops to help them stay still. Hmm. Lindsay, what do you think here? Uh, yeah, I think that is D, the heart rate drops. Okay. That's what I was going to go with. That's amazing. Actually, I'm not even lying this time. You're smiling awful big for not lying. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> what can I say? I, I thought D, Tim. he stole my answer. He's a thief. <laughs> <laughs> well, Lindsay and Matt are both right. Well, Their duh. heart rate drops <laughs> so they can stay still. It's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. Cool. Which, which is inverse of what you, it's counterintuitive to what you would you think. You think it'd beat really fast. When like, it, I got to get the hell out yeah, of here. Yeah, when an intruder starts approaching around me, my hackles go up and heart rate goes up. Earthing. Your feet get soft. This, this goes into their whole, you know, their whole survival strategy of a white-tailed fawn is to remain hidden and not be seen and not to run away, you know, at least until they're, you know, several weeks older and can really potentially outrun a coyote. But early on, it's hide. And this is where people see fawns and see it hiding and they think, where's the doe? They look around and they think it's been abandoned. Well, that's the survival strategy. The doe herself can attract predators. And that's why they stay separate from each other. And the fawn hides and tries not to move. That's how that that drop in heart rate helps it do that helps it remain still so leave it there so don't take a fun don't take it home (laughs) (laughs) you know we had a a video this is kind of related as far as like not jumping out of their bed but it was uh roger sapper it was a hunt 
uh, took place, I think, two years ago, and uh, it, it's it's actually in Deercast in the DLT oh that monster segment. yeah so there's a giant I forget did it score over two hundred it, it was, was over two hundred it yeah. was gigantic and, and this is one of Mark's like neighbors up there and, and Mark was filming Roger uh, hunting this deer and uh, an intruder uh, a trespasser. trespasser came in and was walking on the property and they had Mark and Roger <sighs> had been filming this deer bedded down. And this guy in orange with a guns walking through the tent or walking through this area, uh, you know, trespassing, looking to kill something. Blaze orange. And this, this giant buck stayed there and never budged. And the trespasser walked right past it within yards. Like it yeah. was very close. I insane, insane video. Wow. Makes you wonder how many deer you've walked by in your day. <laughs> well, I know it, that is interesting because, you know, like say you're going in, in the rut, you're heading to your stand early in the morning or whatever, and you jump something and you hear them bound. Like you want to shit your pants, you bound, they bound off. You know, you're like, oh my God, what happened to that flight? Or, you know, they're, they're getting out of there <laughs> yeah, they, and they don't they even know what you are. They, yeah. Like when, when did they lose that heart rate thing and stay put? <laughs> I don't know, but I, I, I sat in a stand all day one year and, uh, and my buddy got out for lunch and I watched him walk across the field. Well, in the morning, some does came around my stand and literally bedded all around the tree that I was in. And my buddy walked probably within 60, 70 yards of my stand. Thanks a lot. But I, I watched them just stay there bedded and they just watched him as he walked out. They weren't alarmed, they, but they checked him. They knew that he was there, but I'm sure he didn't know that they were there. Was was he upwind or downwind? Like where they? I, I I think, I think he was probably upwind. So don't. Well, I I don't remember. Yeah, I'm just wondering they, if they sm smelled him as well as saw him. If that would change my, their. My guess is that they probably smelled him because he was coming from the direction that they came from, and I was hunting it as though they were going to come that direction. Yeah. So hmm. interesting. Yeah. They're tricky. Uh, shout outs. We got a shout out from uh, <laughs> over on YouTube. Woody Woo, I guess, is how you say that name. Uh, but he's asking. No, you're dyslexic. Woody Woo. Woody Woo. <laughs> he, he saw the last podcast where I talked about winging a Jake with my bow. And he says, Have you seen Lefty since you winged him? I, Woody. I have well, I, I haven't hunted that spot again, and he he's uh, I don't know if you call him I hit him in the right wing, so I don't know if you call him lefty as a result of that, or righty, but I don't know, but I hope you get another chance to kill him. It would be nice because <laughs> yeah. I feel bad for the bird. <laughs> the turkey flying circles out here in the subdivision. That's Tim. See, Tim, Tim's got a tough because he's he's actively choosing to hunt with archery. Mm -hmm. Which he doesn't have a choice because of the places that Most, he's hunting yep. are archery only. So <laughs> and the birds don't have a choice either in the matter. Yeah. Chasing them with an arrow. Yeah. So But we got new rack pack members. All right. So uh if you haven't already, uh the rack pack over in Facebook private Facebook group over uh you know, it's a jury outdoors, hundred percent wild rack pack Facebook group. You gotta join in and Tim picks out the names every week for me to read, and every week there's a fake name in there that I have to uh, figure out every week I butcher everybody else's names as well. You're so, welcome. Montana Schoonover. Montana Schoonover. Then I also have to read these slower <laughs> to make sure that's not the name. Jet Rogers, Jay Moore, Jaden Funk, Kyle Moore, Blake Leffler, ooh, Jerry Elders, cast mm -hmm. member, 
Uh, she's a big doe. All right. That was an easy one this week. <laughs> she's a big doe. Jason Amaro, Jason Baker. I was thinking Montana Schoonover or maybe Jaden Funk. There's a couple cool names in here this Jet week. Rogers. How would you like to have a name like Jet Rogers? Better be man. fast. That's a captain of a starship. <laughs> that was a thing, I'm sure. Man, we got Space Force. Jet Rogers is going to be first in line. All right. That was enough of that. All done. Well, Lindsay, anything? Hey, by the way, on, while we're talking about names, the, the name of Georgia's dear project leader for our DNR is Charlie Killmaster. Whoa. Got to be the best name of a dear project leader in the country. That is pretty solid. Man. <laughs> That's the only way that they would have gave him, like, Buck as a nickname. Buck Killmaster. Yeah. Yeah. Buck Killmaster. <laughs> you just start calling him Buck. <laughs> Destined to be a deer hunter. That's right. <laughs> well, Lindsay, is there anything uh, coming up with, with NDA that you want to promote or anything before we shut her down? Yeah, thanks for the opportunity on that. Coming up immediately next week, May 11th, uh, that's a Wednesday, is going to be our first annual giving day. We've never done this before, a day of giving, so it's our official day to ask folks to donate to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, to support our nonprofit mission. We've actually got an anonymous donor who's already stepped up and said, look, I'll match dollar for dollar every donation up to 50 grand. So if we can raise 50 grand in donations on May 11th, we'll make $100,000 for deer conservation. So I appreciate you asking me the opportunity to share that. And uh, we appreciate y'all's listeners coming over. If they're not familiar with the National Deer Association, go to deerassociation.com and take a look at the work we do and consider giving us a donation. Even a five buck, 10 buck donation would be appreciated. And so you can donate right there on your website, right? That's correct. Yeah. You can donate any day of the year and it's tax deductible because we're a nonprofit. So you can, you know, save the receipt for that for your taxes um, but on May 11th, that's when we get the, uh, the matching. So we'll also have some giveaways and things like that that we're going to do to folks who did give at certain levels. Mm-hmm. So May 11th, NDA giving day. So only on May 11th, will this guy do the match or this person right. do the match? Okay. So, so keep your powder dry until May 11th. May 11th. We need to send out a reminder in the rack pack on next Wednesday for that. Yeah. So oh, we'd appreciate that real quick before you go. Uh, we, we were talking about this uh, before the podcast just briefly, but you might uh, quickly kind of tell us how you're with, you know, the pandemic in 2020, how you're, how kind of the model of NDA changed a little bit because of the lack of being able to do banquets, which was kind of the way of, of raising funds uh, previously. Yeah, you know, that's always been the model in the nonprofit conservation world among all the groups like ours out there was run banquets to raise money. We did that too. But in 2020, we had to cl- shut down all of our banquets that March. Uh, I remember making that decision to tell it, no, clear the calendar, we cannot hold banquets. And that was a huge hit That's in terms cool. of fundraising. So what we we had to scramble to figure out uh, a new model. Um, we turned to our friends in all of our platforms, social media, the website, YouTube, any anywhere that we had, you know, our email list, reaching out to folks and doing fundraisers that way and saying, look, we need your help. We can't do banquets. We continued to do, you know, auctions and raffles and sweepstakes and things. We just did them digitally. Um, you know, on the internet. And so that worked. Um, and what we learned during 2020 was two things. One, that we could survive as an organization without relying on banquets so much. 
Um, we'll still do banquets and a lot of our volunteers enjoy doing them and we'll continue to do those in grassroots areas, mm -hmm. but we no longer will rely on that primarily as our, our primary fundraising source. Um, so what we, we learned that year that we could rely on this national uh, internet fundraising model and that's what we continue to do. Giving Day is a part of that. It's a way to sort of have a virtual banquet where people all over the country can participate and help support what we do. Um, so yeah, that, that really changed a lot of the fundraising model for our organization and, and in ways made us a, more efficient in a lot of ways that I think uh, internally, if everyone could see the numbers, what they'd realize is much more of every dollar given to us now goes to deer conservation. Perfect. Yep. yep. Yeah. You got to watch the overhead uh, with nonprofits and fun fact during my graduate work, this was like 2014, 2015, I did a paper on why the NDA and QDMA ought to merge and Are become one organization. I'm not wow. kidding you. I'd like to see this paper. I've got it somewhere around. Dig it up. And I'm sure I don't believe you. The people at Lindenwood University <laughs> had no interest in what I was writing about, but it interested me and I thought, now, you know, might as well do a project on something that made Look sense. At you. You're yes. a real uh... Look at me. Everyone. Like a Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, you're a savant. <laughs> That's that's awesome. You know, I give a lot of credit to Nick Penizzato, who's our CEO, uh, for pushing us in that direction. You know, during the pandemic, when we were looking for a CEO and mm -hmm. Nick's name came up, Nick said, look, guys, I'm not interested in, in coming to Georgia and running QDMA, but what would you all think of a merger? And for those of us on the QDMA team, yeah, it was a little bit of a gut check. We were, you know, we had to stop and reflect and, and not take it personally. Yeah. Um, but once we discussed it as a team and then started having conversations with, with Nick, we said, you know what? This makes a hell of a lot of sense. This is the way we need to go. And um, that's what we ultimately did. And it has been great for the organization, for the team. Hmm. Uh, so, yeah, we're the National Deer Association now. And I'm, I'm, I was at QDMA. I've been here 18 years almost. Uh, so I was at QDMA for many years. And I'm, I'm proud to be a part of the National Deer Association and seeing how much more we're doing and achieving sure. now. It, it's tough when your identity is at stake. But when you are committed to the mission, then it makes all that a lot easier. And you realize, okay, some of these things don't matter. Let's focus on why we're here in the first place. Yes. So, yeah, great minds. Nice job. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I that paper. Yeah, me too. Tim's taking credit over here. <laughs> uh, I want proof. <laughs> Put the PDF up in DeerCast. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, Lindsay, thanks so much for taking the time this afternoon. We really appreciate it. Thank you all. I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you for you know, sharing the information about our new trail camera position with your audiences. We really appreciate that. Sure thing. Yeah, yeah the article's linked up in DeerCast. And we in, look in forward to hearing more from you guys in DeerCast as we, as we you know, continue on here. And uh, a lot of information that, that you guys have to share, and I look forward to taking it in. Yep, looking forward to the partnership. Thank you all. All, all right. right, thanks, Thank everybody. All right, until next time. Let's shut her down. Peace out. The results are in. DeerCast said great. It doesn't exist anywhere else but in DeerCast. Hunters love DeerCast's exclusive deer movement forecast. Get ahead of your game with DeerCast.